We all have different causes we believe in and motivations for volunteering, but I read about some volunteers that I really can't understand their motivation. NASA asked for volunteers to study how space flight affects healthy bodies. So they asked for volunteers to spend 15 weeks in a hospital bed so they could see how that constant bed rest position affects human fitness and functioning. Can't imagine anybody volunteering to do that. I was in the hospital a couple times and after the second day I wanted out of the bed. Even if I had to stay in the hospital, I didn't want in that bed. I think they have engineers who design hospital beds to make them as miserable as possible. I guess that gets you out quicker. But 15 weeks sounds miserable. Then a Swedish university recruited healthy young volunteers to eat four cupcakes every day for six weeks for a study on the effects of fat on the human body. They weren't supposed to change anything else about their health or their fitness routine or their sleep or their daily habits. Just eat four cupcakes every day for six weeks. And they had plenty of volunteers. Now, I wouldn't do that because I don't like cupcakes. Now, if it was brownies or cookies or something, I might volunteer, but not, not for cupcakes. But that was what the uh, volunteer project was. And then there was the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation who asked for volunteers. And this one is really kind of disgusting. They asked for this group of volunteers to get as drunk as they could possibly get so that the young recruits could test their standardized field sobriety testing. I don't know. I know some people would volunteer for that very quickly. It amazes me on Saturday morning how many people I pick up at their homes and take them to the bar where they left the car the night before because they were too drunk to drive home. And just, uh, it, it amazes me, but I guess that's our, unfortunately, it's our culture. And the last one was a lady named Shelley Jackson who had written a short story. It was entitled Skin, and it was just 2,095 words long, and she came up with this interesting way to publicize her book. She asked for 2,095 volunteers, and she tattooed one word from the book on each one of them, and then they stood in a line and read the word that was tattooed on their body. I don't know. I'd rather read the book myself, but I don't know. But she did get a lot of publicity, and the book sold a lot of copies. I'm sure it sold 2,095 copies, at least, to each of the person who had one word. I mean, would you want to spend the rest of your life with the word the, or the word and, or the word a tattooed on you? I don't know. Some people will do anything to get attention, I guess. But I want to talk tonight about a group of volunteers who spread the message and the mission of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to the whole world. While facing down persecution and poverty and beatings and imprisonment and cultural differences and language differences, it's really amazing how they were able to do that. And it all began in our scripture tonight, Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others 
This is in addition to the 12. Uh, and it, uh, an additional 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go, in, <clears throat> go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to your feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then skipping to verse 16. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw heaven fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The 70, uh, 72 appointed went out. Notice what's happening here. Jesus has set his face resolutely to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there. But only he knows that he's heading toward his arrest, his torture, and his crucifixion. Only he knows that this will be the end of his earthly mission. It's time to pass the torch to his followers, to his disciples, so that they could carry his message and continue his mission. So he gives them this trial run, sends out 72 of them, and they rejoice. It went well. So the 72 went ahead of him to every town and every place, and he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Perhaps you heard the old story about the army sergeant who came into the barracks one morning and asked if anyone in the squad knew shorthand. All of the men in his squad raised their hands, although none of them knew shorthand. They thought, well, that sounds like an easy task just to sit there and write. We'll just write real fast and we'll get away with it. No physical labor, no running, no, you know, just sounded easy. So they all said, yeah, we know shorthand. And he said, good, I'm so glad because the mess hall is really shorthanded and all of you get over there and work. Well, being shorthanded sometimes is not the greatest thing. 
But in this passage, Jesus is saying, we're shorthanded for this mission. You don't understand it yet, which they did not, but I'm sending you out to the ends of the earth. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers to help you. They didn't realize, but at this crucial moment in their journey with Jesus, they were coming close to the end. This is the moment when Jesus' disciples officially become his apostles. And this is important. In verse 1 where he says, where it says Jesus sent them out two by two, the verb used here is apostele. Literally means he apostled them. Now there's a difference between a disciple and an apostle. I know we use them interchangeably sometimes, but they're not the same. And most of you probably know that. A disciple is simply a student or a devoted follower of Jesus. And I think we're all disciples here tonight. But the word apostle literally means a person sent or a person sent out. And there's a big difference there. We need wisdom and humility to be a disciple, but we don't need the power to be a disciple. We don't need the power of the Holy Spirit working in us just to be a disciple. You can be a disciple your whole life, but you're not an apostle until you go out and share the ministry and the message of Jesus with others. That's when you need the power. That's when he told them, I'm giving you power and authority. That's when you need to love others with the same passionate, sacrificial love that God has for them. That's when you need the power to announce the kingdom of God to a disbelieving and a hostile environment. That's when you need the power to heal the sick and cast out demons. That's when you need the power to stand up for the truth and light in a world that embraces darkness and lies. If you sit in church each week and doubt the power of the Holy Spirit, if you sit in church each week and don't feel that you're being prepared for acts of mercy and justice and truth that are greater than you can accomplish in your own strength, if your worship and study isn't leading you to walk out of this church and look for someone who needs God and needs the good news of the kingdom of God, then you're still a disciple, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being, it's good to be a disciple. We should be devoted followers. But we won't really receive the power and the authority and the vision and the presence of the spirit of the living Christ inside of us until we commit ourselves to being an apostle, one sent. So if you're willing to become an apostle, I think there's three primary steps in the process. The first calling of the apostle is to pray. In our lesson today, we read Jesus saying, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, in the New Testament, there are five different Greek words used for prayer. And each one has a slightly different meaning and portrays a different approach in our relationship to God. The word the Lord used here, ask the Lord of harvest, is a Greek word which I can't pronounce and some of you may be Greek students, so I won't try to, but it means the act of begging or pleading. It's the same, you, ver, excuse me, the same word used in Luke 5, 12, where a man covered in leprosy falls on the, his face in front of Jesus and asks, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's that same Greek word, that pleading, that begging. And in Luke Chapter 8, a demon-possessed man begs Jesus not to torment him. 
And then after Jesus heals him, he begs to be allowed to follow Jesus. It's the same word. And in Luke 9, a father begs Jesus to heal his sick son. And it's the same word used in all of these cases. If you've ever prayed from a heart of desperation or brokenness, then you understand the concept of this Greek word. I'm going to try once to pronounce it, but not again. Diomai, I think is the way it's pronounced. But that's the kind of heart Jesus wants us to have when we pray for those who are in need of the message of Jesus. He's saying, beg for them, plead for them, let your heart break for them. Love them enough to pray for them as desperately as a parent prays for their sick child. We have a lot of parents here tonight. Have you ever prayed for a sick child? Sometimes it's a really desperate prayer, isn't it? It's not just a matter of, please touch him and run off and do the dishes. It's a serious, heartfelt begging and pleading. And that's what Jesus wants us to have for the lost. In 1905, E. Stanley Jones was a student at Asbury College. We've heard a lot about Asbury in the last few weeks where the great revival is going on. Have any of you ever been to Asbury or to Wilmer, Kentucky? No one's ever been there? Oh, Pam and I have both been there. Uh, not at the same time, however. Uh, Wilmore, at that time, I don't know what it's like today, at that time it was the college and a few homes where the instructors and staff lived. And there was a Dollar General and there was a gas station that sold groceries or a grocery store that sold gas. I'm not sure which, but that was it. There was just the two, two businesses in this area. Not a place that you would think God would say, wow, this is a big metropolis where I need to start a revival because it's going to reach the whole world. Kind of place you'd think, eh, you know, just, that's just a little town. Let's go on to Louisville or, or one of the big cities where we're going to start God's work. But no, it started at Asbury. And that's at least the fourth, this is at least the fourth time there's been a great revival starting at Asbury. Well, E. Stanley Jones was planning to become a lawyer. Jones and three of his friends were praying together one evening when they experienced the Holy Spirit's power falling upon them. And so instead of quitting, as they usually did, they continued to pray. And shortly thereafter, a few of the other people in the dorm felt the power coming in so strongly from that room that they went in and joined them. And soon there were so many they had to move out into the common area of the dorm and then over to the chapel. And it went on for days and days and days of people coming in and praying and, and growing in the Lord and being filled with the Spirit. And it was during that time that Stanley Jones felt God calling him to the mission fields. And in 1907, he moved to India to minister to the untouchables. Uh, probably most of you have heard about the caste system in India. If you haven't, uh, Google it. It was a terrible system that supposedly is no longer in existence, but I think it pretty much still is in existence. There was a class of people called the untouchables. You weren't supposed to speak to them or touch them or eat with them or let them work for you. or, or that They were just untouchable. And Stanley Jones felt that this was the group of people God was calling him to minister to. Now he went in to India and respected the culture and the traditions of the Indian people and did not try to impose Western culture or practices on them, which many of the European and American 
missionaries did not understand at first. Uh, heard a man speaking once who said when he was a little boy, his father and mother went to Africa as missionaries and had a lot of converts. And as soon as someone got saved, his parents would get them dressed in Western culture, uh, clothing. Said, uh, you know, if you're going to be a Christian, you got to dress like this. I don't know, are we judgmental? I don't know. At any rate, he said, one day one of the men came in wearing a shirt and a tie, and he said to his father, why am I more holy on Sunday because I wear this than I am during the week when I don't wear this because I love Jesus the same all week long? And his father took off his tie and said, take off your tie. The tie doesn't make us holy. It's our love for God that makes us holy. And I think that's an important aspect of being a missionary. You've got to accept the culture of the people. Uh, back in the 60s, I think it was, maybe the 70s, I don't know. I was young at the time, but I don't remember. There was a Jesus revolution, the Jesus culture. There was a church in Minneapolis. Uh, it had been a uh, Catholic uh, church, huge seated hundreds and hundreds of people and the two men who rented the building from the Catholic Church started ministering to the very large hippie culture in Minneapolis and in a few months that huge church was filled with hippies who'd given their lives to Jesus and came there to worship him they still looked like hippies but one night I was asked to come there and I, I went and the power of God was so strong in that building as I looked around at those people and thought man you shouldn't be dressed like that and you probably ought to get your hair cut but boy I could feel the power of God in this place and I think that's important accepting people as they are because God does I'm so glad that God accepted me as I am and didn't say, hey, you've got to lose 100 pounds before you can get saved. The doctor tells me that, but uh, God never did. Well, the doctor actually doesn't say before I can be saved. He said, if you want to save your life, you need to lose 100 pounds. Maybe it's not the same thing. But at any rate, uh, E. Stanley Jones ministered to these untouchables as they were. And soon he brought together other people, some of the well-educated and the influential Indian citizens saw his work, and when they talked to him to tell him he shouldn't be ministering to these untouchables, they realized what an intelligent but caring man he was. And soon he had a big following of all classes of Indians. In fact, his ability to bring people together was noticed so strongly that when the Indian government needed someone to negotiate they called E. Stanley Jones. And then some of the nations in Africa heard what he had done in India, and when they needed negotiators, they called E. Stanley Jones. And then in Asia. Before his death in 1973, still in India, he had preached to over 100,000 people. He'd served as a voice of conscience to world leaders, and he'd written 28 books and the royalties from all of those books went to Christian ministries. All because three guys started praying in their dorm room at Asbury College. Once when reflecting on that small, small prayer meeting, 
that motivated him to become a world-changing missionary, Jones said, I just want to tell you all to be careful how you pray because you might find out you're the answer. And I think that's what happened to him, and I think that's, you know, maybe if we prayed more, we'd be the answer more. I'm not sure. The next calling of the apostle is to go and offer peace. In verse 5 of this lesson, Jesus said, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And I think we understand that the peace was critical to Christ's ministry. Wherever he went, he brought peace. There's a great story of the medieval knight who returned to his castle one evening looking like a bloody mess. His armor was dented, his face was scarred, his horse was limping. The lord of the castle said, What hath befallen you, sir knight? And the knight answered, O sire, I have been laboring in your service, robbing and burning and pillaging your enemies to the west. The nobleman said, But I don't have any enemies in the west. And the knight said, I think you do now. <laughs> well, wherever we go, we should bring peace and not disturbance. Jesus was very specific in telling his apostles to go in his spirit, that spirit of peace. And unfortunately, I think through the centuries, there have been too many people who profess to be Christians who have brought disaster, uh, wars, uh, nothing to do with Christianity. But if we're going to be an apostle, we go in peace and we preach peace. In verse 9, we also read, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God were also at the heart of Christ's ministry. In fact, if you look through the Gospels and see what day, Jesus' daily schedule was, it looked something like this. He went out. He offered peace to all who would receive him. He healed the sick. And he went back. That was his daily schedule. Except sometimes we read that he went into the synagogue to pray and sometimes he went off by himself to pray. But if you look at his life story, the three years of his ministry, he only preached in the synagogues a handful of times. But hundreds of times he taught, he preached, and he healed people in the marketplaces and in the fields and in their homes. We cannot fulfill the calling of God in the comfort of the church. Now, understand, I'm not saying all of you should get up and leave. <laughs> Wait till I'm finished and we sing a closing song, then you can leave. But we really can't complete his ministry within the walls of the church. We come here to grow as disciples. And then we go out to be apostles. We've got work to do, but that work must be done in the spirit of the Lord Jesus. So our first calling as apostles is to pray, and our next calling is to offer peace. And the third step, and this is perhaps the most important, is to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that world as it will be when God rules over the world. It will be a kingdom of justice and a fulfillment of peace. 
When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he prayed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're a long way from that, aren't we? In fact, every day I think maybe it gets worse, which only leads us to believe that the time for his return is coming closer. The birth of Jesus served as the, uh, well, if we were in a race, that would be the word go. <laughs> his birth was the beginning. It's when the whole race started towards the time that God will send Jesus back to rule this earth. But until that day, we're called to announce the kingdom of God with our words and even more so with our lives. Pastor gave me a form to fill out a few weeks ago, and maybe some of you, well, I know some of you got it because he told me he was going to give it to a few people asking about your prayer life. I don't know who got it. Maybe I'm the only one, but he told me he was going to give it to several. But anyway, one of the questions on there was, how much time do you pray spending for your ministry? And I had to write on there, I really don't know what my ministry is right now. I mean, I, I was thinking ministry within the church. I don't teach a Sunday school class, and Joanne, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I, I don't lead a group. I, I Basically, except when the pastor's gone, I sit there, which is fine. I'm very happy doing that. But I couldn't think of a specific ministry. So I started praying, God, I don't have a ministry, and I always have had, but what am I supposed to be doing? And I realized what it is. I drive Uber. That's a ministry. Oh, the people I've had chance to witness to. I, and I haven't thought of that as a ministry. I just thought, well, you know, they get in my car, they start a conversation, and I talk. I realized that's the new ministry I have. So now I'm spending more time for praying for that. But it took me a while to realize that. There are so many hurting people in this world. I pick up so many people at hospitals who've been there to visit their sick daughter or their sick husband or their sick wife or, or they're going in because they're so sick. I had no idea how many people have dialysis treatments, but I don't think a day has gone by in six months that I haven't taken at least one person to a dialysis a clinic where they spend, I don't know, six or eight hours on this dialysis machine. I had no idea there were that many people. And the conversation usually starts with them saying, where are you all from? And I say, well, I, I live in Oklahoma City. Yeah, but you're not from here because you talk funny. And as I've told you before, I usually respond, you think I talk funny. <laughs> you ought to hear you all. But... Uh, <laughs> At any rate, they say, well, what brought you down here? They say, well, I was a pastor in a church here called us. Oh, you're a pastor. Can I tell you or can I ask you to pray for me or, or can I share this with you? And it's opened so many doors, I think more than when I was a pastor. <laughs> I, I've just I have so many people. Just got a notice from Uber yesterday congratulating me because I've given 3,000 rides in the last five months. That's 5,000 people. And I'm afraid I haven't realized it was a ministry until this last week. But we all have a ministry. I don't know what your ministry is. I, I think I've told you once before about grace. Not this grace. 
I, I don't know enough about her to tell you anything about this, Grace. But a little lady named Grace, who, whose husband had passed away and, and she lived alone, and she realized that she was getting really depressed just sitting in her little house day after day after day. She only lived a half a block from the mall, so she decided, well, I'm just going to go up there and sit on the bench and knit. At least there's people around. And she started knitting, and people would come down and come and sit down next to her and say, uh, oh, what are you knitting? Oh, a pair of mittens that I'm going to give uh, to some kid or a hat or whatever. And Oh, that's nice. And, and conversation would continue. And we started having a lot of visitors in church on Sunday morning, and I was glad to have them, but I just wondered what all of a sudden you know, was bringing these people. And, and I learned that as Grace was sitting there knitting and people were sharing their problems with her, she prayed with them, invited them to church, and they started coming. She didn't know she had a ministry. She just thought she was knitting. I think all of us have a ministry. We just need to realize what it is. Well, you may remember, or you may not have ever heard, I don't know, the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. One day he was contemplating his death just two months before his assassination, and he said to the person who was with him, Every now and then I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral. If you're able to find somebody who will deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. I'd like for somebody to say on that day, Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love everybody. To say that I was a drum major for justice and for peace, for righteousness. I just want people to realize that I tried to live a committed life and that's what I want to be remembered for. Now, we've heard a lot of stories about him since his death. I don't know what's true and what isn't, but, but I think that's a good sentiment for all of us. I want to be remembered as having lived a committed life. Jesus told his apostles, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. And you may not have thought of this, but because of those 72 and, and the 12 disciples, you're here today. Those 72 went out and recruited others who recruited others who recruited others who recruited others down through the centuries. And somebody that Jesus prayed for way back then told you about Jesus. Isn't that kind of exciting? And we don't know what people in the next generation will know about Jesus because somebody here told somebody about Jesus. Uh, uh, that multiplication is just exciting to me. I, I really hadn't thought about it until I started studying for this sermon. We're all here today because those 72 believers prayed and went out and offered peace and healing and announced the coming of the kingdom of God. And their message and their ministry empowered by the Spirit and by the authority of Jesus Christ spread to every continent on earth. One time, well, I guess when I first read that, I thought, huh, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if there's any Christians in Antarctica. It's not a place deeply 
inhabited. So I did a little research, and there's a little church in Antarctica, just a little one. But the people who work in the uh, weather stations and the few things that go on there, the research stations, have put together a little church where they worship. So, yeah, it's spread to every continent, even Antarctica. But the work isn't done. Jesus calls you to be his apostle. He calls me to be his apostle. He wants us to come into the church and be disciples, to be taught, to grow, to be strengthened, to encourage each other, and then to be sent out to reach a lost world for him. We're to announce the coming of the kingdom of God until the day Jesus returns to make it so. Would you stand together? And we're going to sing a closing song. It's number 311 in the book, 311.